Hello and welcome to another episode of Cloudscape Podcast. We are continuing our theme for the month of September 2022, which is building a modern security stack. Last week, we spoke about API security, and this week, we are talking about cloud-native security monitoring. We had Jack Nagulieri. He's the CEO of Panther.com. We spoke about what should cloud-native security monitoring be like, what is security monitoring compared to a traditional one, what it used to be like. Jack has spent some time in companies like Yahoo and Airbnb as a practitioner where he was dealing with petabytes of data as a problem to solve. Now at Airbnb, he was part of an open source tool that was released to do monitoring. And I'll leave the link for that in the show notes as well. Now, as he kind of went down the path, he constantly realized that, well, it is actually a data problem. So a lot of the conversation that we have today focuses on how different is cloud native security monitoring from your traditional monitoring. How can you start today in talking about this, whether you should build or you should buy one of those open source tools for monitoring. We also spoke about some of the requirements that you might have in your team later on, especially when you start dealing with a lot of data and a lot of logs where some of them might not even make sense to your incident response team or SOC team for they might not have the cloud context. Or sometimes you may have tools that don't even understand a cloud native service on how does it affect in terms of on-premise, whether you can actually port over something from your on-premise environment. All that and a lot more on this episode with Jack, definitely check it out. If you know someone who's trying to build a cloud native security monitoring or probably someone who deals with petabytes of data for cloud native logging or just building a detection program in cloud, I think they should definitely hear this conversation. And if you're listening to the Cloud Security Podcast for the second, third or fifth time, I would really appreciate if you can drop us a review or a rating on iTunes or Spotify. It really helps more people discover us. That means we get to help out a lot more people. Thank you everyone who has been sharing all the podcast episodes on LinkedIn and other social media as well. We really appreciate it. Thank you for tagging us as well. It really means a lot when you find value in the episodes that we create. And we strive to continue to have valuable content for you so you can have a great cloud security career and hopefully remember us along the way when you become popular. So before you go, I just want to let you know that we are starting a new series called This Is My Security Architecture, where we would have professionals talk about how would they build security architecture for cloud services in Azure, AWS, and Google Cloud. We are starting with Azure tomorrow with Sai, one of our previous guests. So definitely check out the YouTube video for it. Unfortunately, that would not be converted into a audio because as you can imagine, when you're trying to show something on the screen, it doesn't really translate into a podcast episode unless we figure out some magic of doing it. But I would definitely encourage you, if you are someone who's trying to build secure services within Azure, definitely head to the YouTube channel. While you're there, feel free to subscribe so you get to find out when the next one comes out. I hope you enjoy that episode as well. It's a new series we're starting and we're really excited about it. A lot more people have been requesting for it. So we finally have a series that we're starting for this where we go a bit more deeper into implementing some of these controls that we talk about on the podcast. I'll see you on the YouTube video tomorrow. Otherwise, I'll see you in the podcast episode when it comes out next weekend. Talk to you soon. Peace. By bringing developers and security together, you don't have to choose between speed and security. Develop fast, stay secure. Welcome, Jack. How's hey, it going? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming in. And really looking forward to this conversation. I would love to, uh, there'll be very few people who would not know who you are. So for the one or two people who don't know who Jack is, how would you introduce yourself and your journey into the current role that you're at? Yeah. My name is Jack. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Panther. And we are a cybersecurity company based out of San Francisco. And our whole mission is to make SecOps painless effectively. <laughs> and our whole mission really comes from my own background, my own journey, which I think we'll talk a little bit about today. And yeah, really excited. 
Sounds good, man. Because you were, I mean, I guess you had a history with Airbnb, with Yahoo, yeah. as a practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious as well. What's how? What's it like to transition from becoming like a engineer, like all of us, and suddenly become like a CEO tomorrow? I mean, if you have a short version of that. Well, it wasn't a overnight transition. It took a lot of time. So, yeah, I mean, my background is in incident response. I started out actually at a company called Verisign, and I remember I walked in. And like the first week, my manager sets down with me. He's like, all right, this is a SIM. This is what an alert is. And I was just like, what is an MD5? Like, I don't know what any of this means. And then, you know, I, I was just fresh out of school. I was actually still in school. So those internships like really were the gateway for me to get out to Silicon Valley and kind of continue onto that like next step of my journey, which led me to Yahoo and, and operating at such a massive scale. I mean, Yahoo was a giant company. And, you know, they had over a billion users. So that was quite a big difference. And then going from Yahoo, the bigger monolith tech company into Airbnb, which was the more like cloud native, fast growing startup at the time. And they were kind of like an an upstart, you would say, right? Like they weren't super small then, but they were getting ready to go public and a lot of these other things. So the experience I had there was really interesting. And I sort of used these unique experiences as a practitioner to start the company. And I wanted to start the company because we saw this shift happening where there was a lot of people struggling to deploy SIMs and myself included. Like we used, you know, big SIM at Yahoo and it was really difficult. And then when we joined Airbnb, we had sort of been struggling with using them in the past. And you know, my teammates were from Facebook and from uh, Dropbox and things like that. And we just wanted to build something that was cloud native because we were just struggling with like high ops, high cost, like rigidity. We wanted to automate a lot of things. We wanted to really operate in the cloud. We wanted to operate with a lean and, and mean team. We were only two people. So it's like, how do you secure an entire growing business with two people? It's pretty hard. Yeah. So we wow. relied on technology to make that easier for us. Wait, so, so cloud native is an interesting one as well. And yeah. you, since you've kind of been on that practitioner side, how do you define cloud native? It's a good question. I, I'd say it's, it's like an abstraction layer, right? Because everything at the end of the day, the cloud is just servers, right? Yeah. yeah. But as time has gone on, it's become more and more and more abstracted from you. Mm-hmm. So cloud native to me are services that accomplish a specific use case. So for example, storage. Storage is a thing that we used to like rack servers for and install NFS nets, right? Like that was the thing we did. Now yeah. I click a button in, in Amazon and I, in AWS, and now I have a storage bucket, I have blob storage. Like, yeah. That's cloud native to me. It's taking a particular use case or a part of the stack and just productizing it and making it super simple to deploy. And then you sort of rinse and repeat that across everything that supports a technology business. Interesting. And, and it's, it's definitely well aligned with the conversation we're having today as well, because so this month we're basically helping people understand what a modern security stack is looking like these days. Last week, we had a conversation with Corey Ball about API security, as in how API plays a big, significant role in the modern security stack. And security monitoring is obviously a massive part of it, but you have this tweet, which is pinned on your Twitter profile, so I definitely encourage you to check that out, around what you felt is a security stack for a modern, I mean, I, I guess cloud-native stack, if you want to use that word, I guess. What was the thinking around it? Like, why do you feel, uh, we'll go into the whole detail as well, but... What was he thinking when, about with that tweet? I'm now making you think quite hard with the tweet now. Yeah, the tweet was fun. I think the intentional part of it was really, how can I sort of bring forward these practitioner founders who have like solved these problems inside of companies and are now like solving 
a problem generically for a wider audience. So it's practitioner, practitioner founders effectively. And then yep. the second part is built in the cloud for the cloud, right? It's this massive shift has happened in the last 10 years to where like when I started as a practitioner and when a lot of those other founders started as practitioners, they were sort of in the early days of that shift because Yahoo, AWS wasn't really that popular then. It was kind of gaining traction, but people were still using like OpenStack and they were like building it themselves. Yep. So now we all transitioned and then we learned a bunch of stuff and then we started companies to just like fix it for everyone instead of just doing it inside. Awesome. And I think the one thing that I took away from that tweet, to, to what you said, I love the fact that you kind of mentioned that the transition of practitioners to, I guess, founders, kind of like what you did. But I love the fact that in your tweet, you also had, oh, things like everything that we can think of right now, like vulnerability management, secret scanning, automation, email, everything has like a cloud native equivalent now. So do you feel like as an industry, we have matured since the time when we started? Absolutely. It's completely different. And I think the biggest benefit with that maturity is the fact that we don't have to deploy tools ourselves anymore, because that's what we have to do. We used to have to do that all the time. Oh, you want case management? Like, here's an ISO, like, have fun. <laughs> and I'm just like, I don't want to do that. And if I could click a button and pay a SaaS vendor and just be like, okay, cool. I have case management in five minutes. That's awesome. And that's really the whole thesis of the company, like I started the company because I thought security people should focus on security and not all those like surrounding distracting operational things that exist. Yeah. To, to your point then, maybe worthwhile calling out how different, because you know, a lot of people might just look at this and go, well, Jack, we've already, you know, spoken about security more than for years now and yeah. you've been doing it yourself. Why such a likeness towards cloud native security monitoring? Well, I think cloud native is sort of twofold. It's what are you protecting and how are you protecting it? So yeah. the, how are you protecting it is operating on the technology basis, right? So we use cloud native tech in order to account for the scale and cost elements being better because we used to do this ourselves. It was really operationally heavy. It was very expensive. It was very difficult to sort of keep things up to date all the time. Like we're not ops people. We're studying how attacks happen and we're doing it as a response. We're not, we're not DevOps engineers. Like I kind of was because I had to learn it, but yeah. most security people don't have that experience and they shouldn't have to have that experience. So there's that element, right? So cloud native as the basis reduces ops significantly and it takes away a lot of the scale and cost issues that happened before. And the second piece is as you build your application, using the cloud is the focal point of that. So where is your data coming from? It's really coming from the thousand SaaS apps that your company probably has. But you narrow it to like 20 that are the most important. And that's how really how we start. I usually think about maturity of a detection program as like starting really broad and saying like, what sources can we go get that give us the widest coverage across our attack surface the fastest? And that's typically your cloud audit logs or your like orchestrative, like Kubernetes or similar logs. And they sort of just go like narrower and narrower and deeper. So we see really big deployments of Panther, they've taken like a specific use case, like endpoint or something or network, and they've just gone like a huge scale, but you only do that after you have a good broad set of visibility. So again, like cloud native becomes the focus on the basis in which we operate our technology, but also yeah. how you as a practitioner need to really secure your systems. 
for, so for context, for a lot of people like me and probably yourself in the past as well, who probably have been doing traditional security monitoring for a long time, how do you explain that difference to them? Because I think one of the things that I wanted to kind of highlight as well as we talk about as building the modern security stack and doing the entire month of September, mm-hmm. one of the things I'm, I'm highlighting is also the fact that the traditional way of, I'm just going to, I don't know, all, well, A, I remember it used to be a thing that security just wanted all the law. That's being questioned these days as well. The other thing was everything just needs to be ingested into a seam. But nowadays, like AS and all these other providers have their own capability as well. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's so many choices to be made. So, and a lot of people can normally would hear then go, well, I've already got the tool that I need. This is already a solved problem. Why is it so special yeah. for cloud native? So in terms of like, how are you seeing the market currently be for security monitoring? I'm curious as a practitioner or from what you've seen before. Well, yeah, I mean, when I started... When I really started 10 years ago, it was just the SIM in a box. So mm-hmm. it was like the arc sites and, you know, those types of things. And you just, you get it in like the alien vaults as well. You deploy it, you feed it data and it's like, this is bad, go fix it. Yeah. And you're like, okay, but these 50 things are actually not bad. I checked all of them. So <laughs> what we did is we evolved and with that evolution came like higher scale. So those didn't work for us anymore. So we went to logging tools because that was the closest thing to yep. us like accommodating scale. And then that's when I was a practitioner. We, at Yahoo and Airbnb, we were just using the logging tools. So, you know, broadly this is Elastic, Splunk, Sumo Logic, and like a few others, but they're just very yep. generic tools. And they didn't yep. start as security tools. They sort of evolved into that after us, the practitioners were like, we need to put our data somewhere and we need a way to search it. So oh. that was really the only option. And then what ended up happening is, and then those one are, are going out of style currently because they're really hard to scale and yeah. they're very expensive because they were built 10 years ago. And as cloud native businesses, we're growing so fast now and the access to creating infrastructure is so democratized that like any engineer can just like click a button and launch like a thousand instances. Whereas yeah. before you have like this big like process and, you know, it was a little bit more contained. You couldn't grow out of control, but we've seen yeah. these like crazy hyper growth companies just like come out of nowhere. And I'm speaking obviously to like modern companies, right? Like, not every company has this problem. And if you're not facing these problems I'm talking about, like don't fix it if it's not a problem, right? No one typically can do that because we're so strapped for time. But on, the, the honest reality is like most security teams don't have the data that they need and they do struggle with all these things. And regardless of scale, it's still a problem because people want to automate things. We're super understaffed. Like we really want to work smarter and not harder. Yeah. So it's like, that's why we look at newer, like modern security stack companies. Like that's kind of, or products, I should say. So yeah, as a practitioner, it was just logging tools and scripts that saved my life, you know? And wow. now we see like productization of these verticals, which it's a good call out that you mentioned that I did call out like all of these different parts of security because it's, it's super new. You know, most people probably don't even realize that like those are all the different types of security. So when you say like, oh, I'm a founder of a security company, that could mean like 30 different things. That's right. Security is this big nebulous thing that just exists that like we have to navigate. And it's kind of like witch hunting a little bit sometimes. You don't have like, especially instant response. Whereas other things like vulnerability management, it's like more more cut and dry. But IR is just like very, very difficult and very nebulous because there's not always a definition of like good and bad. It's really like you're investigating a crime scene and you have to prove 
that it's bad or good. Yeah. Right. It's very, very gray area. So I hope that answers your question. It does. And I think talking about not so modern environments as well, I've got a question here from Vineet as well on this. Does security monitoring for cloud native also expand? I think he's mentioning on-premise environments. On-prem. Yeah. It, it totally does. I think it's the basis of your monitoring lives in the cloud now. Yeah. And as long as you can bridge from on-premise into the cloud in some way, then yeah, it totally applies. That's Sweet. that's always been my experience. And you can do that easily with, or, you know, I, I say easily because I've done it too much, but so you can bridge that gap fairly simply with like Logstash or Fluentd or whatever. The on-premise challenge, <clears throat> the way I always thought about this and the way cloud native security monitoring, it only, it's almost like if you were to think of cloud as a house, like a fully automated house, because it's enabled by APIs, you have all these levers that you can pull to, oh, I need information for my AWS S3 logs or for my VPC logs or mm -hmm. some other logs. Although I think there's like a Chris Ferris from, I can't remember the name of the company, he works for, but he did a talk and he's talking about all these logs that we get from AWS, like the biggest one being the S3 data log. It's just like a massive wave and it's like followed by like a little VPC and then there's another one, little one cloud trail after that. I mean, we're still talking a lot of data, which I, my understanding was that it, it's only possible in cloud because it's cloud native to what he said, it's API enabled. But from an on-premise world, do you find that there's capability in on-premise as well for this? As in, do you know how you were saying you can bring that bridge that over? Or do you feel the vendors in that space are also building tools to integrate into cloud because they realize people are moving into cloud? I actually don't have the opinion that on-premise vendors have, have made it easy for us. I don't think they have. I think even <laughs> I think even SaaS vendors struggle to make it easy. But the ones that I have tons of respect for are the ones where they just give it an option to put it into S3 or SRS yeah. or, or Google's like blob storage or whatever. Yeah. So that's the best. And they use JSON. Like, can we just use JSON for everything, please? Like, why are we? <laughs> Wait, not please. YAML? Is, is that even a... Uh, well, oh, no, people don't use YAML for logs. <laughs> but oh my God, that'd be terrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so you know how you mentioned the detection program as well? I, I feel like threat detection itself has gotten a lot of limelight in the cloud native space and where it used to before on-premise. I don't even remember these be titles for detection engineers before. Now there's like for detection engineer, earlier it used to be threat intelligence. So with the program that you mentioned for hey, detection programs, do you have some insight for people who may be looking at this going, okay, Jack sold me on the idea of doing cloud native security monitoring. Yeah. What am I looking at? What am I really building in my company to do to even start this today? It starts with visibility. A line that I said recently in a blog post is you can't protect what you can't see. Mm. So you have to really start there. And I wrote a few blogs on this on my Substack. It's about what detection engineering like really is and how you start with it. So it talks about logging, it talks about testing, detection as code, things like that. And then I'll probably write some, some more. I just got home from travel, so a lot of time yet. But it's really just starting there and, and making sure that you start with a platform that will grow with you. And I think that's a big mistake that people make is they use short-term solutions or they, they build something themselves that probably works for the scale they're at currently, or maybe for the next three months, but not after that. And in security monitoring or detection and response, which we also need to just standardize and calling it one thing, like 50 different things, but into response detection, whatever it is, we need to think in the very long terms, because if we get breached. At one point, we may not hear about it for six months later, and that's a very common thing. So if you don't have the ability to go back, or if you don't even have the ability to retain that data, then you're kind of out of luck. And then you can't, you, you really can't answer questions about what happened. So you don't know what the extent of the breach was. And then a lot of other bad things happen because you can't really prevent it again because you don't know what happened.
So you never want to be caught in that position. So you should always have visibility into the assets that you care the most about. Like what are your like quote unquote crown jewels? Like what are the, what are the things you need to, to monitor? You know, if you use the house example, which I, I use all the time, I think the house example is perfect. You have a house you're trying to protect and yeah. you have like strong windows and you have doors and you have ways of getting in and out and you have cameras and you have valuables in your house and you want to make sure that you know who's accessing it. So yeah. you start there, right? And then you go, you sort of fan out and then you get more and more and more context. So instead of just knowing who unlocked the door to your safe, you see who, who came in the house or who was driving near the house or whatever it may be. And it's very synonymous to like what real attacks look like. You're doing reconnaissance. People are mapping out like, okay, like how do I break into this place? So it just requires a lot of context over a large span of time. And attacks can be really fast or they can be really slow. It really depends because they try to, like the whole goal is to evade us, you know, like how do we get around the monitoring and how do we not yeah. make it look obvious? And that's also a really big challenge is good attacks just look like normal behaviors sometimes, you know? Not yeah, I think hide behind the normal behavior. And even anomaly behavior detection itself is such a big field. I mean, if yes. you want to go down that path as well. I was also going to ask in terms of like the detection response in cloud, because we've been trying to give a comparison to folks who maybe not be in a modern environment at the moment. How different is detection response in cloud versus the traditional security monitoring kind of thing? It's way more automated. So in the traditional world, or, you know, if I just think through when I was an analyst, it was just a lot of like ad hoc querying. It was me typing some generic string and then like hoping I find something. Whereas in the, you know, quote unquote, modern cloud native world, we've adopted these technologies like detectionist code. And in order for detectionist code to be a thing, which is, you know, I'll just quickly explain detectionist code is you use like really small pieces of software to analyze data as it streams. Mm -hmm. So in order for that to work, you need to have structured data and to have structured data. You have to ETL it, extract, transform and load it. So you have to have this transformation which is also a really hard problem to solve. And yep. then you need to analyze it. And then when you're analyzing it, you're looking for certain attacker patterns. And then once you get an alert, you have to go back and correlate across all of your other data to be like, okay, what's the context around this alert that allows me as a practitioner to determine if this is good or bad. And then if you're really sophisticated, you can automate that process. Because everything's structured in a data lake, you can be like, okay, when this alert happens, run a query, and then if this is a result, then do something else, right? And like, that's kind of the world we're like still trending towards is like that fully automated structured data using code to do, to cover like the 80%. And then the human steps in when it's not in that 80% and we have high confidence that this could be really bad. Also from a capability perspective, people should like the detection of score capability within teams to your point, sounds like you need a data lake, you need a detection engineer who can do detection as code. But obviously we're talking about modern cloud bill, large scale companies as well. So it's worthwhile putting that context on top of that as well. Out of curiosity, what are some of the mistakes you, or at least maybe, maybe before we kind of go into the whole mistakes as well, what are some of the challenges in doing this? I find the right talent oh, or man. what are you talking about? The challenge is the technical complexity because to do this really at scale, you have to be nuanced in data engineering. You have to be nuanced in running applications at scale. You have to be nuanced in security, obviously. And it's super hard to find that skill set. And the mistake that I've seen is just people build it themselves too much. Mm. They're like, oh, I have CloudTrail data. How do I analyze it? It's like, oh, I'm going to build a Lambda function and then I'm going to do this. And then, and then like 12 months later, you have this thing that breaks because you're not an engineer that builds stream processing systems. You're a security person. Your job is to protect your organization. But because 
there's been such bad tooling in the past, that's kind of been the last resort is like, okay, we have to build it because I don't want to use XYZ, you know, big logging tool. So that's the mistake I see a lot is people are just building things unnecessarily. It's kind of funny because I'm, I'm somewhat guilty of that, like at Airbnb. However, we built it and open sourced it and we were like, okay, here you go. And then, you know, my motivation was like, I want to keep working on this idea. So I started the company. So that's like yeah. the first, like my residing advice is like, please don't build this yourself unless it is like 100% unique to your organization, then definitely build it. If it's like a conduit of getting into something more structured. So just like you wouldn't go build like your own version of Kubernetes. It just doesn't make sense. Like yeah. thousands I mean, of people who've yeah. done that. Like, yeah. Don't do it. I've um, been part of those projects as well. They definitely don't succeed much. Yeah. It's just, for, it's just not part of the charter of the team. Right. And because the cloud is so accessible to most people and because also we have this culture of like wanting to own projects, like it's easy just to be like, oh, I'm going to build my own version of this, but it, it just ends up falling by the wayside over time. And we get distracted as engineers or analysts because we have real security issues we have to work on. And then that project of like building the infra that protects us is like a back burner thing. And that's kind yeah. of what I saw. And that's again, like why I wanted to work on it full time. I was like, okay, this is such a big problem. Because the funny thing is uh, my next question was going to be, Hey, well, if I'm uh, if I'm starting today, what services in AWS can I use to build one? Cause clearly, I mean, I don't imagine a lot of smaller companies like the SMBs out there would have the capacity to have a data lake. They don't even have a capacity to have a seam sometimes as well. Yeah. I imagine, cause you know, the open source tool that you were part of writing in Airbnb. Yeah. I know we kind of said, Hey, you should not build, you should buy, <laughs> but the, for, for, for those folks who can't, can't buy at the moment, what's, uh, are there, is there like a thinking process you have for maybe if you use the AWS example, any thinking process there for how they should approach it? Oh, it's so hard for me to answer this question as a founder who literally <laughs> built a SaaS product. But I guess the thing I would say is that you can use open source. There's at least like structure around this project. So you're not starting from scratch, but open source is not free. So it's like, it may, you know, if you can't pay for something. You're, that, that's just going to go somewhere else. That cost is just going to go into another thing. And I'm just being completely like CEO hat off. I'm just being completely real. Like open source is not free. That's a big misconception because sure the code is free, but all the maintenance and the time learning and the time upgrading and when things break and like all the surrounding effort that comes with open source, honestly, doesn't end up being worth it in my opinion, especially when you're monitoring at scale. It's just such a non-trivial problem. And if you're not nuanced in it, it's just going to be pretty difficult. And that was my experience. So, you know, I, I think you, you can absolutely do that if you're nuanced enough, but just know that like eventually you're going to run into something. Yeah. So. And I think it's, uh, it's been a pattern that's been noticed in the industry quite often as well, where the conversation normally starts with, Hey, I'm going to try and build myself something. And then you make the mistake and really come back. But I mean, I guess in general, as a concept, it's been something that's been widely adopted, especially if you can find someone with the capability as well. But to your point, I've got a few questions here as well. So I want to quickly answer them. So we need to ask for a comparison cloud native tools at scale, would it be more cost-effective compared to a traditional one? Absolutely. The cost basis of cloud native is completely different because cloud native is typically usage-based on the back end. So an example of that is like S3 Lambda or anything else, SQS Kinesis, like all these underlying services that have been abstracted for us, our cost basis is so much lower. So we can operate at a much higher scale with a much lower overhead cost. So it's really nice. And it's, it's a whole lot better than trying to rack your own servers and manage yeah. that. It's cheaper. I think 
there is a notion that people talk about the initial cost of moving in to the whole cloud native space is a bit more costly and then it kind of slows down. Is that still the case with the cloud native monitoring as well? In terms of if, you, if people were doing it themselves, I would imagine there would be a huge spike in the beginning as well, even if it's unless they go serverless part that you did with your open source tool. It's, it's so hard to generally answer that question because if you have like no volume, yeah, then it may and not be worth the cost if you're like really small, but I mean, I would always say it's worth it, right? If you can outsource something that you are not uniquely positioned to do, which is like running servers and scaling, 100% you should do it. There's zero reasons why you shouldn't do it, in my opinion. So I think to your point, the nuance or the asterisk over there is if you have the capability, sure, definitely you should go down the path. If you don't have the capability, then maybe you should rethink the decision at that point. Then. 100%. I've got another question from Rajiv here. Can you talk about the automation of heterogeneous log correlation? Mm -hmm. For the house example, the logs of someone opening the front door tied to someone stealing valuables, also enhancing the fidelity by pulling the video from the camera. Ooh, it's like a spy movie, man. Great question, man. It's hard. I mean, I can talk about my own experience and things that we've done there, but it goes back to the, the premise of like data engineering is really hard. And what you need to do is create a data model. And the data model has to have unified fields that you can use for correlation. So for example, like a file name, a file name could be called like a hundred different things in your logs. It could be like file underscore name. It could be file, it could be name. It could be all these things, right? So the system that is in taking all this data needs to have a way of normalizing it in some way. So there's just a huge amount of work that goes into transforming data from its original source into a like columnar based storage. And then there's a second transformation layer of figuring out like, okay, is a file name in my CrowdStrike logs the same as a file name in my syslogs, right? And then you can start to do correlations and detections that are a lot more efficient instead of having to write these like really difficult queries, which is kind of what has happened in the past. But there's, I think it's called like the really old version of this is Ceph, it's like CEF. Okay. Yeah. But that that's really how you get there. And again, th these are data problems. And the thing I said, like, Five years ago, I was like, security is a data problem at the end of the day. If you can solve that data problem, then you've gotten a lot better at both like being able to understand your data and being able to retain it for the long term. Yeah. Yeah. And I think thanks for sharing that as well. Because I think you kind of touched on the whole security data lake before as well. And yeah. I kind of like yourself, there's a lot of folks in the industry at the moment, or at least for some time, have been talking about the security data lake and what does that really mean? And actually, maybe good place to start. What does it really mean for you? What is the security data lake? Well, a data lake is a cloud-native, infinitely scalable database. And a security data lake is that for security. So it's instead of putting these logs into, you know, name a log analytics vendor, okay. right? Instead of putting it as like a flat string, you store it as a database. And then that way you can do column-based searches. You can, you can size up. I mean, I'm speaking about Snowflake specifically because they're the ones that like I have the most experience with. But you can separate storage and compute to where... You can ingest data non-linearly, and then you don't have to add more compute. So it's really, really helpful for operating at scale. And mm -hmm. there's a number of vendors, Snowflake, Databricks, and ClickHouse, and there's Firebolt, and like a huge amount now that have really popped up. Mm -hmm. And their whole thing is like, we want to operate at a massive scale with very structured data. Because before there were services like RDS, right, which was Postgres, MySQL, but those have their scale limits. Like they're really good for applications, but they're really bad for terabytes or petabytes of data. So then you have like the data warehouse evolution and like the red shifts 
And then you have the now, now the snowflakes and the Databricks, right? And, and they're taking these like really big data solutions and productizing them. And like, for example, Databricks is based on an open source project. Snowflake isn't, but yeah. yeah. So it's really solving the data problem and data lakes are the way that we solve the storage and search problem. And then serverless is the way that we typically solve the analysis problem. And that's kind of the other element to it. They're sort of both, it's like detection and response, you know? Right. So your ETL would be done by serverless components, I guess? Is that ours, ours is, yeah. Right. So we ETL it on the way in and we yeah. have, a, we try to just support as many log sources as possible. So people don't have to think about it. Yeah. But what's happening in the background is, you know, syslog data can be like very unstructured. So we have parsers and we have transformers and we have all these things to where we just take care of it. And then on the other side, you get this like MySQL database, that, which is what it looks like. But under yeah. the hood, it's like this data lake and it's a collection of these databases and tables. And you can query like gigabytes, terabytes, petabytes of data. And you can pick, you know, a point in time be like, okay, I want to know everyone who logged into this machine for this week, six months ago. And you do it and you get it back and it's done. Whereas before you'd have to wait like six months or you'd have, six yeah. months. You'd have to wait like an hour, six hours or a day or whatever for that data. Just... I remember when I was used to working as a cloud security architect, one of the things that we had in our remit was to basically to make ensure logging was sent to the theme or whatever. But there was always this gap for who's writing the detection on it. And then there was a whole gap for what are we really sending them? Am I sending them debug logs or am I sending them like everything security or what am I really sending them? But to your point, it's an interesting thing to talk about from a data problem as well, because and I'm curious if what your opinion on why is being driven, what's driving the data analytic part as well, because earlier it was as simple as I'm just going to give it to the same team and they'll take care of it. But no one's actually going to the same team and asking, hey, what kind of detections are you running on your cloud environments or the logs that you're sending across? So is that also something that I guess changing in like a, almost like a paradigm shift there that it's not just about, hey, I'm just going to throw it across the fence, but to your point, modern companies are even thinking about, hey, let's make a security data lake out of this. And so we, have, we can actually analyze. And so if Jack found something or Ashish found something or Vinit or someone else who found something as well, we're able to kind of pick that up query or would it still be the team is working on building a data lake, building detections for it, or if there are out of the, out of the box, how to use the out of the box ones, but that 20% that you were talking about, we create them. So that's kind of what a modern stack would look like from a, security monitoring perspective? Yeah, I mean, I don't expect anyone to build the data lake. I expect the provider to build it for me and manage it for me because there's so much that goes into it. It's feeding the data in, it's making sure it's extracted and normalized and it's it's searchable. And those things are not free. You have to work at that in order to get that like healthy operational state, especially at scale. And you have to monitor it because things break. Yeah. You know, the service could go down, like an API can crash. Like you, you never know what's gonna happen, right? So the provider should take care of all of that. The user should just be responsible for crafting the detection logic and making sure that their assets are, are covered and that they have the right data and the right detections to find those things. Yeah. Sounds like the modern security team should also have data skills in there as well. As in, to your point, even if it's not being built, it's being bought, you still need to understand what's really happening and how you can translate. Say, because to your point, Everyone's putting in lift and shift, like, you know, monolith application into cloud as well. So they're yeah. calling it quote unquote cloud native. And you're like, no, it's not really cloud native, but I still want it to be into like a, some kind of a log aggregator. So mm -hmm. some, and I mean, we have been doing IT for a long time. So there are a lot of potentially a lot of those floating around as well. And mm -hmm. from that perspective, to your point, 
Do you see that moving forward, the same way you had that tweet about modern security stack, the modern security team would also start having data folks in the team as well? I think only if you're doing like very advanced analytics. So if you're hooking up a notebook or something to the data and yeah. you want to extend it further, then yes, I would say that could be a world that exists. Is it going to be very common? No, it's not going to be very common because it's hard enough to hire security people, let alone a data <laughs> person who's nuanced in security. It's just a very hard thing to do. And unless you're Netflix or Apple, it's like, you're probably not <laughs> going to do that. That's like the, that's like the top, like 0.001%, you know, uh, other than that, most people are going to rely on the services or the applications to do it for them, which is fully the world that, that I plan to build. So, yeah. No, that's pretty awesome as well. I think I'm looking forward to it as well. That was pretty much most of the questions that I had. Uh, where can people find you if they have any more questions? Where can they reach out to you? Where do you hang out on social media? Twitter is the biggest thing. I have LinkedIn, but I'm very much a Twitter person. So you can you can see what's going on in my head by looking at Twitter. <laughs> I can hear about new things that we're working on at Panther. You can go to panther.com if you want to learn a little bit about the company and the product that we've created for you all to use. And uh, yeah, really excited. We have some things launching in the next few months that I'm really excited about. So you'll hear about it on my Twitter. And uh, yeah, really appreciate the time. It was great to no see problem. you again. Yeah, great to see you as well. Thanks to everyone for coming in as well. And I'll leave the social media links on the, on the show notes as well for people to follow up. But thanks everyone else. And thank you for joining in. Thanks so much. Thank you.